Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, thank you for supporting it. Thank you for supporting the people that support us. And let's get behind all those people that make this possible and keep the wind in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Don't forget, I'm doing a streaming show every day at drdrew.com. Also, YouTube slash Dr. Drew, Facebook slash Dr. Drew, wherever you're hanging out. Usually around, yeah, around 3 in the afternoon Pacific time, we'll do a stream sort of updating. Lately, it's been a lot of coronavirus stuff. And uh, don't forget after dark, man, if you haven't been over there at your mom's house, we miss you and I think you'll like it. Today, I'm welcoming John Roa, entrepreneur, technologist, uh, philanthropist, inventor. His book is A Practical Way to Get Rich and Die Trying. <laughs> I thought it was or die trying, but and die trying. Uh, also, his podcast, The John Roa Show, R-O-A, at John Roa, uh, Twitter, J-O-H-N, and the website, R-O-A.com. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Drew. How are you? Good. And die trying? Explain that piece. It was a crazy adventure, and um, you know, I, I do feel as successful as it was at the whole. I lost a part of myself in that journey, and um, despite very clo- be- being very close to actually dying in the journey, mm-hmm. um, there were some things that were sacrificed, and that's not a topic we talk about enough in the entrepreneurial game. Let's get into it. What'd you miss? What you? What have you lost? Well, it was crazy, man. So I'm sure relationships relationships are something that Ooh, most entrepreneurs yeah. know you lose, right? relationships go quick. Yeah. And, um, my first one was an early teenager, my best friend who I grew up with. We started a business together. He then stole the business and my money. And that was my first lesson. And so it went from there. I'm 36. Now my first business was at 14. So 22 years in this game Eesh. and, um, and, you know, gained and lost a lot. And, and it's a story that as I've met more entrepreneurs, more successful people in my life, I realized my story is not that uncommon. We just don't talk about it. And that's why I wanted to kind of put it out there in a book. Keep going. So he, 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 that's one – that was sort of – I mean that's a friend that you know, he violated your trust and was being a bad yeah. person. I'm sure there's more sort of incidental losses just from working too hard or being too preoccupied, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, well, <laughs> some incidental and some, you know, pretty much a byproduct of self-destruction. But mm-hmm. as the as the risk and pressure and stress built of being an entrepreneur, you know, I was 26 years old, found myself running with the fastest growing companies in the U.S., um, very little experience. I had but, you know, basically failed high school, failed out of two colleges, finally fumbled through a degree and basically didn't know what I was doing. Felt like a fraud the whole time. Um, really didn't believe I deserved my own success. And I found myself self, self-sabotaging that success. Maybe, and I got caught up in... Dig into that a little bit. So, so yeah, of course. The, the imposter effect is pretty common, right? Yeah, the imposter syndrome, yeah. And usually people with imposter syndrome actually do know a lot. They just know that when you know a lot, you don't know anything. That's exactly it. And, you know, I think it comes with, um, especially in, I can only speak to tech entrepreneurship. What's interesting is when you, when you research imposter syndrome, you hear about, you know, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks or Tom Hanks telling, you know, telling the public that they don't deserve their own success. And they're like, well, that's ridiculous. But when you go through it, you really do believe that you have faked everything. You are a fraud and you deserve nothing. And at some point the shoe will drop and you'll be discovered. And that is a horrible feeling. Well, that now I, I kind of feel like that's not a universal experience. I, I believe that a lot of celebrities feel that way and yeah. that's what leads them to do all kinds of crazy stuff, including substance yeah. use. Um, and and it, 
at its core, there is a lot of shame sitting there. So where yeah. did the shame come from for you? I think the shame came from, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a situation that there wasn't a ton of outlets for opportunity. You know, I grew up in an immigrant household in a suburb of Detroit. My dad came from Venezuela. And so when we grew up, we had enough to be fine as a, as a family, but not much else. And so I didn't really believe I was going to have a ton of opportunities to break out of that cycle in my life. And even when I became an entrepreneur and started getting involved in technology, I still didn't see that as an opportunity. I just enjoyed computers. I'm a big computer nerd at the core. But then all of a sudden in my 20s, you know, you build this company and you feel like you did it kind of by accident. I was struggling. I was broke. I didn't really know what else to do. And so I went back to my, my normal, which was trying to build things and trying to make an opportunity for myself. And then all of a sudden it starts working and people start depending on you, believing in you, photographing you, interviewing you. And it's like, you're, you're still thinking back to the guy who failed school, who's, who's been told their whole life that they're probably not going to make it, who's not terribly smart, or, or at least you don't believe you are. And then all of a sudden people are telling you the opposite. And so you are caught between the two worlds of what you think you're supposed to be. And you are out there preaching that you are, you know, that, that this is all deserved and you're a genius and that, you know, you're owning that, that mentality. But then as soon as the, as the, as the cameras turn off and you're back home, you're struggling to believe any of it's true. And it's a very difficult middle ground. And I think you're right that it's not universal. I think it's it's people who are probably more self-starters, uh, definitely more creative. It can be a pretty vicious cycle we fall into. And did you understand going in that these were sort of some of the risks? Or did you have any sense of what not it meant all. to be an entrepreneur? Or why did you sort of go down that path and not just get a job? You know, I didn't even know what the term entrepreneur was probably for the majority of my life and career. I hadn't known any as a kid. No one in my extended family are entrepreneurs. Um, I just, that kind of brain that is built for solving problems and, and taking risks. And, and you know, the, the biology of entrepreneurship has been studied recently. And it's really interesting to hear that there is a lot more to it than just people who like starting companies. We are built for this the same way athletes or actors might be. Mm. And it's it's as much of a curse as it is a blessing. Um, we are, our propensity for risk is kind of matched with our propensity for mental health issues for <laughs> for, for um, other sorts of things. You know, Dr. Michael Friedman's figured out that about 73% of us have diagnosable mental health conditions. And, which, and what, where primarily does that sort of, what does that center around? Mood disorders? Uh, yeah, a lot of it's mood disorders. Um, you know, I think the kind of cluster A stuff, the, the depression, bipolar, the anxiety is really high. I think it's eight times higher for bipolar for entrepreneurs than the general yeah. public. But now, there's, a, there's an interesting thing that goes on in entrepreneurs, which is successful entrepreneurs are typically hypomanic, right? And yeah. Very typically. I mean, Trump is a good yeah, example yeah. of this. You know, he gets up at four in the morning, all this stuff. Right. Uh, and the a lot of the constructs that I've been seeing are starting to depathologize that hypomania that you see in in, uh, in in entrepreneurs. But I'm wondering, in spite of that, there is that risk in certain subsets of the group that's flipping the mania. And, and I'm betting that the manic stuff really comes in if people start using substances. Listen, it doesn't help. And, and I went there. I, <laughs> it doesn't I, help. I, well, because, it, because I, you start getting so exhausted and you start, you know, you start traveling and then oh, just a little sleeping medication. Now the sleeping medication is hanging over, just a little stimulant, no big deal. Now, now right. it's, that's a recipe for cooking mania. 
a hundred percent. And I think you're seeing it in a lot of people, our president included, but also, well, but he, but he, at, he has this weird phobia of substances because of his brother. Sure. So if right. he were a normal entrepreneur, he would have gotten into that cycle for sure. <laughs> right. So that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. But uh, you know, you, you think back to like Kanye West's, you know, yeah. uh, admission to David Letterman about his level of bipolar yeah. um, and then his behavior afterwards. And so, and by all accounts, he is CEO of Kanye West Inc., right? That yeah. guy is a hardcore entrepreneur yep. as well as a typical musical creative. So yep. you know, I think you're seeing it quite often. And then the problem with business entrepreneurship, the more classic like tech entrepreneurs is that we don't talk about it in real time. You only hear about it in retrospect. Mm. So you don't hear about these stories until normally there's a disaster or somebody has come out the other side and talk about it like me. Right. You never hear about it in real time. Well, so it, until, it, it, until Aaron Schwartz took his own life or Colin Kroll took their own life or whatever, or, or Kate, you know, until these things happen, you you don't really know this is going you know through your day to day. So you mentioned Kate Moss. You put her in this category. I, I didn't well. mean I didn't mean Kate, Kate Moss. I, I mean Kate, Kate Spade. Uh, Spade. I knew who you meant. Weird. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Yeah. interpreted we both, we both Kate Spade. The right word. Yeah. Yeah. Kate Spade. Uh, I do. A hundred percent. I do. Yeah. And to that point, did you ever contemplate talking out loud during your early entrepreneurship, feeling like an imposter, and sort of? externalizing it and saying, or was it too shameful to then say that it would expose you to too much shame to say, Hey, I don't feel like I deserve this. Or I really feel like an imposter here. I'm just a regular guy trying to make this thing go. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because there were definitely times where I felt deeply aware of, of my own imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And there were other times where whatever side you're, you were kind of the, the pendulum was swinging to felt absolutely real. Like there were times where I would stand on stage and deliver a speech and I would finish it and feel like I got this. I deserve this. This is where I belong. This is me. I am the, the CEO that, that everyone requires me to be and expects me to be and believes I am. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I would wake up shaking and, and say like, none of this is real. I'm, you know, someone's going to walk in my office and say, we figured you out. You're a fraud. And mm -hmm. I believe that 100% that my business is going to then fail. And so there, there were times where I was not aware but others where you truly could feel that vacillation happening. I, I'm wondering, two things occur to me. So one yeah. is if, if Silicon Valley, the TV show is any, <laughs> is any example, and I find it to be very accurate by the way, but it's, it's sort of, very it's, accurate, but it's sort of yeah. compressed, you know, time, yeah, the yeah. time frames are kind of compressed. But it seems very accurate to me, and if to that to that degree that it is accurate, any vulnerability is discouraged in the culture of tech, which is weirdly Absolutely. which is weirdly how the the blood chick got in trouble. What's her name? Uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes got in trouble, right? Yeah, she, she, yeah, could, yeah. she could never ever talk about yeah, any yeah. questions about the product. Questions. I, that, I mean, to me, that's where she really sunk herself. Uh, and that's that's contrary, which is really interesting, contrary to essentially all science, but in particular the life sciences. So weirdly, so to, to the extent that tech is a science, it has diverged from uh, – again, I don't know how biotech operates that well, but I'm imagining right. it's full of life sciences people that think everything is just sort of maybe. <laughs> Every, everything's a maybe. Absolutely. And, and listen, like what happened with Theranos is not a terribly unique story. Hers just became obviously one of the most public and one of the most you know, significant legally. But, but that complex of show everyone, yourself, investors, you know, employees, clients, what they need to see in order to succeed. Yeah. And we will figure out 
all the lies later. That is a common attitude in the tech startup game. And we're somewhat encouraged to do it as well. Clearly not to a felonious level that she did, but mm. but the but the basic mindset of fake it till you make it is is par for the course. That is what we're instructed to do as entrepreneurs and rewarded for doing. And so did that really help solidify the imposter stuff for you? Was that something that was going on Absolutely. at the same time? Absolutely. So that was also Absolutely. going on at the same They're time. all part and parcel, yeah. So, because so I could see how people would feel like an imposter if they are being an, they're being an imposter. Absolutely. And, and I, they're I, psychologically I, set up for it too. Absolutely. When I started the company, I would go around and tell everyone who asked, I am creating the best design company in Chicago. That was my pitch. Mm. That meant nothing. I'm not even yeah. a designer. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> I, I was, I, I was a 26 year old kid in debt who had, you know, basically failed college. I, I, why would that claim even have the littlest bit of credibility? Because I was saying it with, with confidence. That's when, it. when was but that? Then it, it when, worked. What, what year that was, was that? 10 years ago, 2010. So, so I was in the middle of all this stuff in 2000, 1999. When uh, it, it had a different version of it, that was sort of the web sure. website area. Have I ever told you the story, Gary? Oh, Adam talks about it all the time. How you how com was valued at fifty million dollars. Well, here, it's got even weirder. So, wow. so, so here's what happened. So, a friend of mine went to Harvard Business School, and we went to college together, and high school together, and junior high school together. And he goes, "Hey, man, uh, you ever thought about doing a website?" I mean, he's in, he's back east now. I go, "I don't know what you're talking about." And he goes, Let, "Let's let's just come with me. Let's go." So we went up to Sand Hill Road. Uh, he goes, just follow my lead. I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and we sat there in a uh, soft bank funded uh, VC, venture capital. Uh, and he sort of gave a pitch. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I, I, okay, I get what he's talking about. And the, the pitch was 10 minutes. We the The group that we pitched to, I said almost nothing. I just reiterated what he said because it sounded good to me. Uh, <laughs> The 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 group in the room convened in another room for about five minutes, and they came back and gave us five million dollars or ten million dollars. It was ten million dollars. Wow. Wow. I, I mean, it was insanity. We yeah. at, at that point had an angel investor involved that had given us a million dollars, and so so it, there was so he was starting to put things together and stuff with that million dollars. I still didn't really understand until I heard his pitch on Sand Hill Row what what it was we were doing. So so. <laughs> So I was like, okay, okay, I'm I'm in. We'll we'll go build this company. Uh, Wait for the listeners. What were you doing? What was his pitch? His pitch was uh, Drew's a trusted, a trusted um, drdrew.com is going to be the trusted destiny. We were going to be the MTV of the internet, essentially. And at that time, Adam and I were on MTV and stuff, and sort of we trusted brand on MTV will be a trusted brand on the internet, right? Uh, and they were desperate to send money out to try to find – so essentially they were looking for the next Amazon. next. And that became, was the peak of that first dot-com bubble. First bubble. And so right, exactly. what, what emerged from it was Amazon, Google, and uh, what else emerged from that? What do you guys think else? Uh, Yahoo at the Microsoft, time? Yahoo, all that. Yeah, Yahoo, yeah. MSN, a few, a few websites, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of the, the websites you open your page to. When you open your computer and those, here's your choices, which is Google and Apple and Amazon. AOL. AOL. Yeah. All, all these things emerged yeah. from that whole dash. It was a dash. It was, it was literally – it reminded me of when the U.S. government opened the frontier along the Oklahoma border, people just ran in and started putting yeah. down flags and things. And so so my buddy put together a 
uh, board of directors, and, and I'm sorry, John, for going all the way off on this, but I realized no, let's no, keep going. No, this is no interesting. One's, no one's ever really heard, heard me tell this story. Uh, and, and Gary, particularly, you need to know it so you'll have be armed when Adam talks about it because Adam only got the flavor of it because he was around when it was going on. Um, and uh, so, so he put a board together with people that had found the road to liquidity, which is the word, the language I understood, <laughs> which is essentially, you know, built a website for a nickel and sold it for a hundred million dollars. And these were all people from San Jose. And uh, they came in and we had this board. None of these people did I know. None of these websites was I had ever heard of. Some of them became like search engines, PayPal, things like, you know, things. Elon Musk is another great example of having yeah. done it, made it. PayPal was boom, one of those things that made it. Um, and uh, and we were building essentially a magazine online, essentially. And I, and I kept saying, why do we need another phone book that you can just get on your computer? Why, why do we need – this is – I, I don't understand what we're doing. It's just a phone book. This is just a this, and 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 I thought and I thought. Well, what's unique is that we have these chat rooms, and that's kind of interesting. If we learn to build those chat rooms into something interactive, if I'd fucking gone one step further, I would have thought of social media. And then I kept saying, we need video. We need video, and and we ended up doing a TV show. Every week, a f- like formally produced television show every week with the guests where everybody came on. Everybody, like, all our MTV guests came on this little video thing because it was kind of a cool thing to do to be on the internet. The problem was nobody could see it. Nobody could watch it because nobody had broadband, if you remember right. that that whole transition. Yeah, yeah. So if I thought one step further, I could have invented social media and YouTube because I was on to both <laughs> things. Uh, and my team was just interested in publishing a phone book, essentially. And I just kept saying, why? why? What, what do you mean? So, so I go into the first board meeting and I go, I go, look, I, I, they go, they want to hear from me. And I go, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what we're doing here. And uh, there's we're spending lots of money, and we're not we have no idea how to make this a profitable thing. So I'm kind of thinking we got to figure out a way to kind of keep it keep it where it is and figure out some way of being profitable and then growing from there. And this one guy, one of my board members, screamed at me and pounded his fist, and he said, "If I thought you were so stupid, I never would have gotten involved in this company." And he gets up, and it was a huge dry erase board on the other side of the room. And he gets up and he goes, "This is how you make money on the internet." And he writes in guys hypomanic, hypomanic as hell, and he writes in giant letters, "Get big fast." And he's and then the whole concept of burning monthly burn came into my consciousness, and we went down that path, and that's where we went. Um, and the idea was to build essentially audience fast. That's really what they wanted, right? Yeah. And uh, and so the idea of profitability, anathema. No, no, forget profitability. Don't worry about that. Well, keep in mind, Drew, that this hasn't changed in twenty years. This insane. is still Silicon that's Valley. Insane. This is it's still insane. this is still it, man. It's, that's insane because yeah. that's not a business. That's a I don't know enterprise. I don't know what it is. Not a, a business has to make money. So, mind you, we had great success getting big fast, and went uh, so much so that there we were on March nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine, sitting in Goldman fucking Sachs. With a woman across the table from us, uh, telling us, uh, giving us a one hundred and ten million dollar valuation on a company that did nothing, and was going to contemplate give us twenty million dollars, 
except <laughs> that particular day was the day the NASDAQ crashed completely. Wow. It, it evaporated. And she looks at us and she goes, let's kind of see how this day plays out before we make a decision about that $20 million. And my buddy and I were in Times Square. You know that big NASDAQ where ABC is? Looking in the window at the NASDAQ graph there in Times Square, just watching this this just – what would you call it? A bullet in the wrong direction. Just this absolute – absolute catastrophe involving in front of our eyes. We're like, oh, my God. And that's immediately following that is when I – this was a great education for me. It was the most – I mean it was expensive for a lot of people, but it was a business school education for me on how to to seed, fund, build a business. And then I learned that immediately when we returned back to Pasadena, the next phase of the business cycle, downsize, (laughs) liquidate, (laughs) close up, shop. Uh, And and that was incredible to see the – Full yeah. cycle of a business inside of a year. Uh, yeah. It was the weirdest damn thing I've ever experienced. But so, John, I kind of know <laughs> the territory yeah, in which you've been, and I learned a ton uh, of what I would do differently, and you know, uh, uh, you know, and what this is all about. Um, so, Gary, any questions about this? Really, I'm telling this for <laughs> Gary's benefit since he's been around us talking about this forever. I've never yeah. told the whole story. No, it's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, Adam always talks about how. Uh, Adam just can't wrap his head around the tech format. You know, he's such a Adam He does Gro- podcasting for a living. I listen, I get it. And John, just in case you're not aware, we've been referring to Adam, Adam Carolla, Drew's partner of course. in Loveline yeah, of Forever. Course. Yeah. Um, you know, he's well, podcasting I think he understands a little bit, but he's got a unique understanding of that because he, he, he thinks it's radio he thinks yeah. it's radio online <laughs> he wants it to be radio online because yeah. that's what he's comfortable with yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know it, from a business standpoint you know he's been physically tangibly building things with his hands for so long that the idea that drdrew.com is worth more than twenty dollars just yeah. doesn't compute to him. <laughs> it he, shouldn't have been he can't he's understand right. it he is he's right. absolutely correct i 100 percent agree what's interesting to me is that he still looks for salaries in his podcasting kind of business which is interesting because that's, yeah. that's a radio head that's a radio thing yeah well it's yeah. you know and i i can sort of understand it i know, do too if, if, i get listen right but we got salaries on radio it was it was life-changing jesus christ I mean, going from Adam's literally a millionaire, struggling from five in the morning till ten at night, taking care of critically ill patients, and then running a drug unit. This is salary from a radio. Crazy, man! Crazy, crazy for a living. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like what the hell? So, John, so uh, I'll I'll hand it back to you. I'm sorry for that digression. Um, No, that's a super interesting story, actually. I mean, that that was a bit before my time, but I read a lot about that generation. It's fucking insane what happened back then. It's insane. So so give me a story in your own uh, generational version of this that sort of mirrors my uh, ancient history. Well, I think the biggest part is that, you know, I I started this company, again, with not a lot of foundation – and it starts to work to the level that we become one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. And, and unlike the story you told, we were a real business. We were profitable from day what? zero. What? What's wrong with my, you? Just I, get big. Don't insane, worry about the business. Right? I know. <laughs> insane, right? Hey, your board I mean, my, members must have been pissed. <laughs> no board, no partners, no oh. investors, no oh, wow. nothing. Man. So you're just a just privately me. held – did you have any privately VC money or anything? Or? company. Was there, v, was there VC money involved? Never a dollar okay, in so, this company. Yeah, so there's an, I, and no, and no private equity or anything? Nothing. Okay. Not a, so, so my net investment drew in this company was eight hundred dollars. Wow, Gary, John, what what was? I mean, you don't have to give the name if you don't want. But what did your company do? 
Oh yeah, for sure. And so it's, it's all in the, it's, it's in the book. So this is all you know pretty public at this point. Yeah. The company is called Okta, and we were a design innovation consultancy. So basically, we were called upon by pretty at the end pretty big prestigious companies to design innovate products for them. And so somebody would say we have an idea or a challenge or a problem, and they wanted us to go through the theoreticals, to go through a business you know case, and then design a digital solution for whatever their idea was. And so that could have been you know products we did for BMW cars, products we did for United Airlines planes. I mean, we did some pretty wild stuff towards the end. But at the beginning, it was because I had a small glimpse into design kind of when I was in California at another failed startup. (laughs) And when I came back to Chicago, I was like, wow, no one knows a fucking thing about design in Chicago. I know almost (laughs) nothing, but a little bit more than them. Therefore I believe I can sell them something. And that's all it was. Well, but that to me seems like a legitimate position to take uh, in the sense that your job then just is. is hiring the right people. Well, that's, that was it. And so I, I believed in, in this, in the philosophy of design, despite not being able to do it myself, but I did believe that if somebody said yes to me, I could then find the people who actually knew how to that do makes, it. That makes that makes sense. Build a business. That makes sense. It made sense. It, but it, again, it felt a little bit fraudulent to go out, you know, because normally you'd expect a lawyer to start a law firm or a doctor to start a doctor's office. You don't expect a non-designer to start a design firm. So it was a little. It felt a little strange. But listen, it worked. And so our first client was a three hundred thousand dollar account. And which was a hell of a way to start, became very real very fast. And two years later, in 2012, I think it was, end of the year, we were one of the 500 fastest growing private companies in America, all bootstrapped, never took a dollar in capital. Wow. And so t- to your point, Drew, about kind of getting your business education very quickly, I got it real quick. Yeah. Because I didn't know crazy. any of this stuff. But that's the and stuff I had they nobody st- assisted. That's what they study had, in Harvard Business School. That's, that's what yeah, they study. And I had nobody assisting. Yeah. I didn't have a board. I didn't have mentors. Yeah. I didn't have anybody. Crazy. So I had to learn very quickly. But the craziest part was two years later when we decided to sell the company. Now we're a big company. We're considering global expansion. We're, we're just printing fucking money. And that's when I had my, my mental break. And I ended up in a hospital um, after crashing out really, really hard. And, and it was after that that I realized that if I didn't, if I didn't finish this journey soon, I probably wasn't going to survive it. And so I then had to figure out how to sell a company um, in a nine-month process, which was the most <laughs> insane and challenging business process I've ever been through. And our banker said, "He's like, you just learned, you know, you just basically got your MBA, yeah. you know, in about six months, and yeah. it was a, it was a hell of a thing." And we got lucky to, you know, have sold the company outright to Salesforce in 2015. All right, so I, I want to get into all that, but before we, yeah, do, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I want to just make a couple of points and clarify a couple of things. Yeah, one is. Uh, while I think it's legitimate for you to have been in the position you were in without a big design background, the Theranos story is a very <laughs> telling um, – to me, the tale is about the risks of not knowing about biology if you're going to be in the tech right. biological tech business because you have to understand biology. You must right. understand how nefarious and vague and probabilistic and uncertain it is. And so so she did not know any of that clearly in my but, mind. But I'll tell you something, Drew, because I talk about Theranos quite a bit with people. Yeah. And, and when the story really broke, I, I had a different opinion than a lot because 
what she ultimately was doing was attempting to build something that you're, you're completely right. It was not her wheelhouse. She did not understand. But like me, she figured with enough time, people and money, we can figure it out. But hold on, to, hold, yeah. hold on. Gary has a question. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm wondering, I find this story fascinating and know a lot yeah. about it. Should we give a thumbnail sketch go for ahead. people who go don't? Ahead. So I, I'm maybe I'm not John. If you feel comfortable, no, no, give it to us. Come I just basically no, rock out, man. Rock out. He's into it. Yeah. It's, you know, this is a, this is a lady who built, uh, built this whole business on the idea that she could create a blood test that could do all kinds of crazy bullshit that yeah. just isn't physically possible. She dressed yeah. like Steve Jobs. A single drop of blood. Right. Yeah. Single drop of blood. She modeled yeah. after Steve Jobs. She gave these sweeping presentations. She was a very eloquent speaker. And she basically just built this shell game around something that any doctor would look at and go, well, how the hell is that going to be well, possible? For, forget how the hell is that going to be possible. If you watch the documentary, there was a female uh, physician about my age who said something, the only thing in the whole thing that to me I went, yeah, that's exactly how I feel, which is it's completely unnecessary. We right. don't need this. Right. They, they right. were not going to add any diagnostics. Who cares if you take a test tube of blood or a drop? Who gives a shit? All we need is the accurate information. Oh, well, so well, well, you can do a finger stick as opposed to a blood draw? Who cares? Really, Drew, that's, a- that's, you, you just nailed it. That's exactly it. And this is what people I don't think understand because the, the vibe you get when people watch documentaries, oh, she's a sociopath. Yeah. Oh, she's this like psychopath, emotionless robot yeah. who's defrauding people. That's not true at all. What she did was not dissimilar to what other entrepreneurs have done. She just, again, towed that line into the felonious territory. Yeah. But when Elon Musk did Tesla, and he said by, you know, whatever year he said, that was insane, where he's like, we won't be driving cars anymore. It'll be like robots. You can be, have a nap in the back seat. That's insane. That, yeah. that was impossible. Yeah. I mean, not just technologically, but societally. That yeah. was never going to work yeah. inside of our roads, our cities, et cetera. But that's what got people excited. That's how he raised money. That's how he built the brand. That's how he got. That's how he built his empire. And then he slimmed the vision down yeah. to something amazing, but very doable. Yeah. That's what she was trying to do. She, but she, but she you know, started her, her, from essentially, it's, it's like if Elon Musk said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to invent the automobile. It'll just be a little smaller. It'll be, it'll be uh, right. maybe a little more efficient, and maybe you'll be able to have it in your living room instead of your garage. But I want right. the automobile. The automobile is going to be great. It's like, not, I, I don't need that. I don't need it. Right. And listen, I mean, clearly she got enough people excited about the vision. And I think what she was attempting to do, and without knowing her, this is my, yeah. my thesis on yeah, it, yeah. is that she was trying to have enough roadmap and enough roadway in order to achieve a version of her vision yeah. before the money ran out. You know, with the with the momentum that she had created. Yeah, I get now, that. I get that. Obviously, you know, stepping over the line into you know illegalities is a whole different you know ball of wax. But but that mentality of pitch the impossible. This is the Steve Jobs mentality. Yeah, he would he would go to developers inside Apple and demand of them something he knew was impossible. Yeah, to get them to work as hard as possible. I mean, he knew that it was literally fucking possible for them to deliver what he asked for. But that's how he got them done. But but in electronic in 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 technology and electronics engineering, impossible is a relative term. In life sciences, there's impossible. Oh, trust <laughs> they're, me, they're, I, they're, I'm not defending so. it. Oh, I, I am in no way defending Elizabeth. So. I, I am. I am. I am only trying to provide yeah. what might be a different perspective instead of just. And, and to be it fair, off, oh, it just she's crazy. We'll, yeah, I, I, I too, yeah. I couldn't tell what was going on with her. She is a little odd and whatever. Right, yeah. But, but yeah, uh, yeah. the reality is just a bad business, just a bad idea, and they get right yeah. down to it. But yeah. Um. So the other thing we we've been using terms that I just want to clarify for people. So 
you know, yeah. a solo, what would you call the, what would you call your company as a solo owner? Uh, well, a, we call uh, it bootstrap, boot, right? Okay. So, so when, when you don't raise capital and you're, and you're solo, it's a bootstrap. Right. Company. So as opposed to yeah. venture capital, which are people with these funds with yeah. a lot of money that want to put money into your business, is, like Shark Tank. Shark Tank is essentially Correct. venture capital. And their, and their desire is to get out as fast as possible with as much money as possible. So they're always looking to dump you off somewhere, and, but it leaves it in the hands of guys like John or me, if we're taking the venture capital, we're stuck in this thing for a long time. While the venture capital goes, have a good time, double their money, and they just leave. Right? It, it, it does happen that way, but a lot yeah. of times you see them doubling down and doubling down to the point where the founder ends up with almost nothing. Loses. Well, that's a different right, you and know, that and that which I, is seems a, to a me super common story these days. Man. Yeah, it seems to me that's also something happens on, on the private equity side, which is again you have other kinds of funds that are owned by individuals yeah. rather than organizations and or a one person, and that one person's investing in your company, that kind of thing. So it's a whole different yeah. kind of vibe. So let's now go to your. Um, Oh, what did you say? Oh, yeah. You're, you're crashing out episode. So so take walk yeah. me through that. And when, that's, a, that's a nice euphemism, but what actually happened? Yeah. So into our fourth year, and, and it was interesting because I was living between two worlds perfectly. And so one world was, you know, this, this young CEO that was doing TED Talks and speeches and making millions of dollars. And I was the quintessential tech entrepreneur. As soon as no one was looking, I was you know, basically a mess of a human. I was partying, doing drugs, you know, I was basically in Vegas every other weekend, you know, blowing tens of thousands of dollars and just living this insane life. And it was all to try to avoid my situation. It was all an effort to numb myself and to not think about what I was doing um, during the day because it scared the hell out of me, the risk I was taking, et cetera. So all of that built up a lot. And I got to a point where, you know, it was just, your traditional, I would say, self-destructive patterns. And um, it was happening more and more and more. Work was getting more and more stressful. And I came home after a pretty serious Vegas bender weekend and, of course, went straight back to a party in Chicago and lost consciousness, completely blacked out. And um, but did you, did you, were you unconscious or blacked out? Two different things. So I blacked out. So you were, so you were running around doing you, you were running around doing stuff, yeah. but you just didn't remember. I was in the middle of a conversation, yeah. and the the girl. And this is all I heard the story later. Um, I just started mumbling, and she. And I, I thought I was speaking perfectly clearly, and she. She's like, I can't understand you. You're mumbling, and the lights go out for me, and I woke up three days later at Northwestern Hospital, mm-hmm. and um, and I had, from what what I understand, and and I'd love your, you know, obviously your analysis of this, but had suffered a, a psychotic break that led to disassociative amnesia. And so well, he, I was he, here, here it's, yeah. it's a little fancy way of describing it. I, uh, you were, you, we, what were the drugs you were using at the time? Alcohol, number one. <laughs> well, there was the prescription side. So, you know, a lot of benzos and those kind of things yeah. to get through the day. And yeah. then on the other side, there was alcohol, there was cocaine, okay. there was party so, drugs. So you were encephalopathic. Your brain wasn't working right. Who knows what was going on? You had psychotic right. features, meaning you were probably delusional and agitated and grandiose and who knows what right. else. And you were in a blackout. Now, dis- dissociative blackout, that's, you know, that's like Well, the saying, reason that they said that yeah. is because apparently I was answering questions in those three days before I, I regained conscious consciousness. Yeah, and yeah. They, they were saying to me, what's your, what's your name? What city are you in? I didn't have a clue. Could not yeah. lock my phone, didn't know my own well, that, that, but by the way, damn that's, clue. But that's the yeah. difference between an encephalopathy and a psychosis. Psychot- okay. A psychotic person will say, I'm Napoleon 
it's July twenty first, twenty twenty. You know, they they will right. they will know exactly where they are. They'll know exactly what's going on. Well, I mean, oh, what's going on? Okay, but they're fully oriented. As soon as you go into disorientation, now you're going towards global brain dysfunction and encephalopathy. So organic, organic brain stuff. All right, Very so you were cool. you were disoriented. Someone and and to say see because dissociated is a is a sort of a psychological thing, and I, I want to dis dis dis. Disabuse you of that if we can, because because you were <laughs> okay, you were yeah. you were in a brain state, and and the, because you were using so much stuff, there's no way to know if that was withdrawal or intoxication or some mixed state, right. you know, who or a manic state with a withdrawal. Who knows? It's just yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. all over the place. But the fact yeah, that so, you were disoriented puts it in the organic category. Okay, yeah. So it was it was a few days later that I even knew up from down and knew yeah. who I was again and. And there's only one human being who you knew I was there, who was my um, kind of number two with the company, a guy named Kevin. And and Kevin, um, you know, came to get me, and, and I kept it from everybody, every employee, my own parents, you know, my friends. I didn't tell anybody, but I it was the wake up call. It was the <laughs> my my body and mind screaming at me, "You better stop this, or else this isn't going to end well." And so that's what led to you know hiring an investment bank and 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 seeking a sale of the company. And we were very fortunate to, to do that nine months later, but it was the scariest week of my life. I, I, you know, doc, it was, I can't even explain. It was the scariest week of my entire life. Right now. Now what's interesting clinically about your whole thing is that there's no way to tell from the story as you've described it, whether you're, so we, we have different ways of defining these things these days. Um, yeah. You clearly had a substance use disorder, but, but I sort of divide into a, a use disorder versus an addiction. And I can't right. tell if you're a drug addict from that store. You were just using a lot of drugs. I I, you don't seem well, like and, a drug addict. You don't strike me as a drug addict. Well, and this is what's interesting is that, you know, I've – and I'd like to hear from you like how – we always use the term addictive personality if yeah. that's actually a thing because I haven't felt like I've ever had that. I used to smoke cigarettes. One day I decided yeah. I don't want cigarettes anymore. I haven't had one since. Um, I don't do drugs anymore. And, yeah. and it, it seems like it was very – Yeah, drug addicts, drawn, drug addicts don't stop doing drugs. <laughs> they don't, right, just, they exactly. don't, just, they don't so, just stop. Uh, yeah, they, you don't, you don't change the to, environment and the drug addict stop. The, a non-drug yeah, I was, addict – I was drawn to anything yeah. to, to turn my brain off, to yeah, try yeah. to stop the chaos in my brain. Yeah. And, and so – you know, it, it didn't matter what it was. Drugs just so happened to be the one of the fastest and easiest methods. But there was the partying, there was the sex, there was the excess. It was all of the things yeah. that could just stop the situation for yeah. a period of time. I will tell you that sex addiction sometimes is right in the middle of that kind of stuff. So there may yeah. be a little bit of that business going on there. But but yeah. mostly it sounds like you got you were bipolar. You're sort of manic, and the, it was spiraling, and you were using medication to try to manage it. Yeah, because I mean, it, my situation day to day scared the hell out of me because it felt like, and, and it was true because my entire worth, not just financially, but my entire sense of self, my financial worth, even my future was all in one company yeah. that could have failed at really end of any time. Any Businesses minute, yeah. can come and go. Yeah. And so you, you sit up at night and you think about that, that, it, that if I get the wrong phone call tomorrow or two things happen you know, concurrently, I lose everything, maybe forever. And and I I'm now bankrupt and fighting that till I'm sixty. Yeah. Those things are scary, man. Yeah, and yeah. That, it's, it's a high. That's wire. what you're, I was you're, running you're, from. You're literally on the high wire. You're you're literally yeah, on, yeah, yeah. You're just up on a wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And what's what's another thing that's interesting to me too is I, are you on, do you have to take medication now or are you not? 
No. Yeah, no, see, that's I'm, interesting uh, to me. So it's sort yeah. of situationally driven, all this stuff, which is fascinating. Okay. Well, so- I, I got into a lot of work at the end, you know, Doc. I was, I was with a doctor in Chicago who yeah. helped me out. We did a lot of neurofeedback, biofeedback, all yeah. sorts of stuff to, to kind of prepare body and mind after that. And oh, it, oh it was no. A lot Look, of work. It's, uh, yeah. Well, good. I mean, because it, because yeah. it, 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 you know, the story sounds like somebody that ended up on medication and the fact that you're not right. and you have no symptoms now and everything, that's, that's tremendous. Yeah. In fact, you might want to, do you want to give me the, who did that? And maybe we can. People are looking for that kind of treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. This was a guy named Alex Pazitopoulos, a Greek guy in Chicago. It's one of the smartest. You know, he's become a good friend. He's a very smart guy, and and he introduced me to just a different way of caring for myself that I had never considered. And it, it was really three hundred and sixty, and it was it was everything from um, the more I would say baseline medical procedures to some things that I never knew existed like neurofeedback. And those were all incredibly yeah. helpful. Yeah. Neurobiofeedback is a really interesting phenomenon. We, we just listening yeah. to clicks in your ears and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You, yeah. you kind of wear all these leads attached to yeah. that little helmet thing. You're basically playing a brain video game on, yeah, on a that's screen. Right. That's exactly you're, what you do. Figuring all these brain waves can change things on a screen and it's pretty wild. Yeah. People, people think, let me, let me sort of t- drill into that a little bit because people think, oh, oh, you learn to meditate. No, 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 not meditate. Oh, oh, you learn to, to understand. Nope, nope. Yeah, you yeah. literally are getting through the visual and the biofeedback. You learn to access parts of your brain that are non rational. Non-conscious, yeah. not accessible, not understandable, yeah. and regulate them through yeah, these, exactly through this, through these I, feedback. Yeah, I've been put through these really intense stress tests and what are I think QEEG tests? Yeah, if that yeah. if that sounds right, yeah, yeah. And they basically were like, you know, your executive functions are firing like redlined, even when you're trying to relax. Yeah, your limbic system is basically not working, right, and so right. you know that was to start to reinvigorate these parts of your brain to slow others down. Right. And it's, it was a you know, and I worked on that for. You know, six or nine months did, almost did, straight. Did you so. do any psychology or insight-oriented stuff as well, or was it all just brain stuff? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I, got, I got into multiple forms of therapy, and yeah. to this day, I'm still, you know, quite, you know, I, I love my, my therapy and my yeah. therapist. And so, what's, yeah. what's been helpful? How would you characterize what's been helpful on the, on the psychotherapeutic side? You know, I would say it's really just coming to terms with things on a in a real time basis instead of just retrospectively. It was mm-hmm. one thing to look back at the journey to write the book and to try yeah. to figure out later what happened. Yeah. It's another thing to wake up with a feeling and yep. be able to go into a you know sit with somebody and say, "Right now, I'm feeling this. What does that mean?" It's what so I do? funny. I, I, that, yeah. In my therapy, that was really important too. Yeah. So, and it got to the point where I didn't understand for like a couple of years to, that I was supposed to walk in the room and go, "Okay." Here's how, what I'm feeling, <laughs> because yeah, I didn't have access. Yeah. To, I didn't have access to feelings in, early in my right. therapy, and and once you yeah. get access to your feelings, it's like, oh, oh, okay. And then the and then let me let me articulate this a little further. Then the therapist's job is to hold you in a frame where it's safe to explore those feelings and to reflect mm-hmm. back to you, m- maybe not in any kind of way at all, other than through their body attuning to you, uh, a regulated version of what you're feeling. Yeah, that it's makes sense? really interesting because yeah. I think it, it starts to explain why we have these feelings in the first place, right? There's got to be a reason for them. And yeah. so as soon as you learn, you can process those and someone can assist in that. It's really interesting. Right. And, and oftentimes, yeah. the, the, someone can, the, the someone can assist in that part is stuff we miss during childhood. That's, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what's supposed to happen in parenting, but it's really hard to do that properly. <laughs> you know, it's 100%, almost nobody yeah. does. Do you have kids? I don't know, yeah. but I've I've a niece now and a nephew on the way, so yeah. you know, been around more of a you know kids in the family, and you know, I, I find it fascinating. I, I really do, you know, enjoy kind of the psychology of, of the parenting because yeah. I think about it, you know, how I'll be in the future, and it's 
it sounds tough. <laughs> and, and so without being, without, you know, sort of pointing fingers and, you know, sort of uh, uh, vilifying yeah. anybody, what, what, what do you think was lacking in your childhood that sort of set you up for all this? Well, I think it's, you know, first of all, I, I was the kind of, I was the outcast of the family in some way. Not necessarily, that's the wrong word. No, it's not the outcast. I was the black sheep in some scapegoat. ways. Scapegoat. You were the scapegoat. Yeah, a little bit because, yeah. you know, my brain's attuned differently. There's no entrepreneurship anywhere in my extended family. I mean, my, my dad, again, was an immigrant and he became an engineer and went to, you know, worked at Chrysler's entire life. Yeah. My mom was a nurse and a teacher mm. and not even in the extended family. We had doctors, we had, you know, other things. Yeah. So I was a a bit odd. And, and I, I, when I came to my own as a teenager, I started to rebel. I started to say like, why should I go do something I don't want to do when I, there's things I do want to do yeah, over here. Yeah. And no one understood that and right. no one supported it, but they wanted to, they wanted to support me. They just had no clue that that was, you know, maybe okay. Maybe something we could take advantage of. And so I, I ended up as a loner. Mm. I ended up doing everything on my own because mm. I didn't think there was a single human being in the world that could relate to me. Mm. Um, and, and and again, I, I don't blame my parents at all for that because how would you have known at that point? Well, there's a really interesting. No sense, there's another. So. There's a sociological piece to your family story too, which is the immigrant story. Which is your, sure, this, yeah. this is a classic immigrant story, right? Yeah. Everyone's supposed to be a doctor and a lawyer and, blah, 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 and success to the yeah. kids really important, and and the parents are hard driving but emotionally absent and maybe even physically yeah. abusive because they bring some of that from the old country and you know <laughs> and there it is. Yeah, that, that's that's yeah. All I mean. Yeah, dad was the traditional kind of Latin American patriarch, and yep. and he also is extremely intelligent, held multiple master's degrees, and so to him to see his son almost fail high school oh, was oh, a catastrophe. Oh, you know, my God. and that, Harry that is a life of that's a life of nothing right there. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but and yet it is it is a second generation story, immigrant story. That's yeah, extre- yeah. That, that your whole family's thing is just sort of characteristic. Um, yeah, yeah. So what? Let's go back to now the the selling of the company. What, what did you yeah. you know that that education? What did you walk away with oh, that shit. you could share with other people that would might be meaningful to somebody? I mean, it was the most difficult. I mean, it, it was interesting from an academic standpoint because I'd never experienced kind of high level business mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole time. You're running what was still a reasonably small business when you compare it to large companies, and then all of a sudden, and here, here's what's funny, Doc is we used to. You know, before I, I started Okta, I would I was trying to get a job. I was trying to be a productive member of society, and so I, I knew technology well enough. I could sell the hell out of whatever I wanted to. So I tried to in your interview at Google and Microsoft and Salesforce and all these companies. I didn't get past a phone screen, <laughs> a single one of them. <laughs> and now five years later, I'm sitting in these boardrooms with the CEOs of yeah, all these companies discussing weird. a sale to them. Yeah. It was the strangest feeling I can describe. But ultimately, you know. You, you now realize that you have something that's very valuable and you have to figure out how to monetize it. But the dynamics of a sale, we usually get those in headlines. So-and-so sold X to Y for X millions. That's all we read. And it's like, oh, that must be nice. Yeah. The level of complexity and the yeah. level of risk and and how kind of messy these deals actually are yeah. is haunting. And, and, and there's two ugly. sides, right? There's the investment banking oh, side and then there's the lawyering and the lawyering side. Yeah. Two different sort well, that, of and, and that's once you get even to a fundamental deal. The yeah. process of trying to sell that and all the gamesmanship behind that and then figure out – and again, I'm in my 20s. <laughs> you know, like I, I guess at that point I just turned 30. So – but I – you know, most of the adventure I was in my 20s. And so it's not like there's a wealth of just – adult experience to fall back on or colleagues who have gone through this before. And so you're learning all this in real time, but you're expected to know it, yeah. right? So you're, they're not looking at you and saying, Oh, you're only 30. You shouldn't know what, you know, blah, blah, blah is 
you should know all of this, right. even though there's no fundamental reason I actually should. And, and this so, is back to the Theranos model. You're hiding what you don't know. <laughs> absolutely. There's no showing weakness of the and, other and side just, of the table. And just praying that you're not asked that one question that you look <laughs> like an absolute idiot. Do, doesn't, so. Don't the IB guys and the lawyers kind of protect you? They do. They do. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're speaking to you. Right? Yeah. It's not a courtroom. Right? They're not letting your representative speak for you. You're wow. the CEO. Wow. So they're speaking to you. And so, and, and we weren't playing games. We talked to the biggest of the big companies. And, and again, our acquirer, Salesforce, who's one of the best you know, tech companies of our generation, is who acquired us. And these guys are so intelligent. You just feel dumb in the room. Yeah. I'm like, oh crap, yeah, yeah. I am so outmatched here. Yeah, yeah. And, but you, but you got to win and you got to fight. And it is that was a crazy game. I think I took 150 flights in 170 days. Oh, Jesus, it was something around that number. Um, and then and you were you know, recovering too from all the. You and know, I was recovering. Drugs. Yeah, oh. and and I was off the drugs and, and the drinking and the partying yeah. and the sex. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You have a lot more time to exist inside your own head, which is not a fun place to be at that point in time. And the traveling doesn't help. You're just constantly in flux and you're, you don't even know what city you're in half the time. You're just repeating the same spiel, trying to keep it all together. And, and what's, what's the weirdest part was we get to a deal and it's for an extraordinary amount of money that I couldn't even fathom. You know, again, I, I never understood having money. It was a very new concept. And so you fundamentally make this deal and <laughs> You start signing papers as if like that. It just seems like the silliest thing. It's little pieces of paper that are about to change everything. And then one day it just ends. You get on a conference <laughs> call and everyone goes, are we good? Hey, you know, lawyers that side, everyone good, good, you're, you're good. Okay, cool. And the phone goes silent. And then you're like, what the fuck? It's over? And, That's it. And, and, and the crazy part for me, and, and I, have you seen the HBO documentary, the, the Weight of Gold, the new one? No. Ooh. Oh my God! Please go watch okay, it. It is okay. absolutely brilliant, and Doctor, you're going to love it. But okay. um, it's about uh, Olympians and what their psychological you know, oh, turmoil yeah. Oh, yeah. sometimes really, post really good. Yeah, winning. I bet. I bet. Oh, it is just phenomenal. Yeah. But anyway, so I sell the company. I'm done. I'm good. I'm. I can do whatever I want. My my life has changed. I could you know retire. I, is I am done, and all of my shit just came dumping on me. I fell into my worst depression, mm. my worst level of anxiety, mm-hmm. my, my worst, you know, my worst physical point and mental point after the sale. That makes sense. Everything to me. just came it's, it's, crashing. It's kind of what happens me. like when people are dealing with somebody who's ill and then they die and then after they're, you know, they're fine taking yeah. care of them, but then afterward it's all stops. That's when the moods yeah. and everything kind of crash in. Yeah, that, because that it, you know, when, when you're that busy, yeah. it was easy to pretend it didn't exist and yeah. to dance around yeah. it and yeah, to yeah. find ways. Once it wasn't there anymore, holy crap. You know what's always it kind got, of fascinated me? And, and this is going to sound completely ridiculous, but I but I so so the next day does just does some numbers appear in your account? You know, how's that, that happen? Is all of a sudden Man. there's a bunch of zeros in your account? And is it in your bank account, or do you set up a fund somewhere? How's that? What is that? I love how does you that said work? that because because I asked the same thing. I'm calling my accountants, being like, "So I get, so I signed some papers, and we shake some hands. But yeah. what happened? Yeah, right. Like, right. trust me, I had this. I had the same question because yeah. we never think about that. And and I'll tell you. So I knew what day the, I was supposed to get paid, yeah. and. <laughs> To your point, like, you know, you wonder if it's some like big fancy something, you know, some dude to the briefcase comes up. You yeah, type it right. Like, or just what is what it? Actually, or, or is it something happens over a long period of time? I guess it depends on the deal. But but anyway, well, what, what happened? What happened with me is I was sitting at lunch with a buddy and I knew that day I was supposed to be paid. And 
this sounds so stupid to admit. I'm sitting there <laughs> on my cell phone with my Chase checking account yes, open. Yes, yes. Refreshing it. I'm yeah. always like pulling it That makes it down. perfect sense to me. Like what's going to happen here? And I are talking. Yeah. As like we're just in the whole lunch, I'm just every th- you know few yeah. seconds, I'm refreshing it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in my literal checking account, like where you buy coffee from is a new number. And, it, <laughs> and, and the first thing I did, which I'm not sure I've ever admitted this, I transferred a million dollars from my checking account to my savings account just to see if it would work. <laughs> just to like... Just to, to like to I, see if it's real. Yeah, I was like, I, oh, I wonder if that will even. And, and it was it was one of the strangest. That makes per- yeah, that makes it, perfect sense to me because all that to me seems like so like magical, like like Penn and Teller. Yeah, it's like what? That's it, exactly it. It, it was yeah. very strange. That is in- insane. Did did yeah. you could you manage the money at that point, or because you, you now you'd been a CEO and so you'd manage budgets and things and you kind of knew the flow of capital? Did that yeah. reflect into your personal life, or did you blow it? Well, thankfully, I had you know made bits of money in the in the years leading up to that. So, yeah. so basically, I became an official millionaire my last day of being twenty nine. Wow. And what's strange is that I I had set a stretch goal to become a millionaire by thirty. Yeah, and it actually happened the day before. What, what do you got was, planned now? I'll, I'll keep an eye on you because you're pretty good at predicting things. What what's your next goal? <laughs> I'll, I'll send you some option calls, and we can yeah. Ah. But but you know it's it was crazy because it, it actually happened, and so I, I had had a bit of money for. The, for about a year before the sale. And, and thankfully I, you know, once you make a bit of money and it becomes more public, like, you know, bankers just come out of the woodwork. And thankfully I had some amazing guys. I got introduced to in Chicago who had worked with a lot of tech entrepreneurs. And so I had already been putting my money with them before I sold the company. By the way, it makes makes me wonder about Chase too. Did Chase like call you when that money showed up in their account? Like, uh, uh, Mr. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We had, we had told them beforehand. Okay. Got it. But, but you know, like, but, but I think checking accounts, the insurance is like, Oh my God. In the hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Trust me, we had to get it out of there. All insured money. Anyway, yeah. so so yes, yeah, um, so you know how to manage yeah. stuff. That's good. So you didn't go crazy. Yeah, but but ultimately, I, there's a couple investment bankers who I formed a relationship with. So I basically gave it all to them, and I was like, "Do you know? I trust you to kind of do the right thing." Obviously, I, I had oversight on it to this day. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't I didn't keep it inside my own control for very long. But but geez, handing it over to somebody, oof, that's scary too. But 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 it was scary. Yeah. And you do hear horror stories on this, but I, I felt like I had done a pretty good you know diligence on that. It was it was one of the major banks. And, and then I, I've made some investments. I've made, you know, dozens of angel investments. I built a home in Greece. And so I, I put my money to work, but ultimately I I let the professionals deal with that. And and did you, you say you were, you were focused on what a million dollars by the time you're 30. That was your goal. A millionaire by 30. That's the goal. Being a millionaire by 30. 30. How did you focus your mind on that? Did you just, was it a thought or something you wrote down or because, because I, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have given that much meaning, but I, I've recently been thinking about this, and I and I think there are techniques to focus your mind to keep goals ahead of you that probably do work a little bit. I'm just wondering if you used anything like that. I, I didn't use anything anything literal. Yeah. Um, and, and when I made that goal, I was very young. I think maybe yeah. even like high school. Yeah. And so it, it was one of those things where it's like, what's the most ridiculous goal I can think to make? And it was being a millionaire by 30. I, but I think some people can do stuff like that. Have you d- had it since then? Have been other things you've decided to do that little out there and you did? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I think you're right that, that subconsciously that was probably, I, I was, I was, listen, it, it literally happened the day before 30. So that means I had to have been proactively, you know, generating some this part of you with your, some part of your brain Absolutely. was focused on that goal. So, what, give me another example of yeah. something you've done that's out there and, and made it. 
Well, I'll use an example of, of what I just mentioned in, in Greece. And so after I kind of went through my, my medical stuff, I resigned from Salesforce, I moved to Europe and I, and I said, I'm going to live out basically a, a dream and I'm going to build a, a home in Mykonos, Greece. And I'm going to live here in the summers and London in the winters. And I'm going to not do tech or business. And I'm going to enjoy the hell out of my life in my early 30s. And, you know, this project in Greece was goes without a doubt saying high risk, pretty wild to do pretty insane. I'm not in real estate. I'm not in development, like mm. to go build what I did and, and then to make it work enough where you can have a return and sell the asset and, mm. and make that into, you know, a, a credible investment in a period of time that I had set out and all that worked out. Good. Okay. So that kind of thing. So, but, but you're but yeah. a little more, little less, um, seemingly out there goals, the goals that, it's still, still, well, I, still big, big risk. But well, like, yeah, I mean, okay. because because that, that was more of like a you know kind of a financial one. But others yeah. from a life perspective are what I said to myself was kind of after that period of time, it was it was then time to move on, and it was time to go back to real life, and yeah. it was time to you know to to stop that period of my life. And so last year, a year ago, I wrote the book, got that book deal done with Penguin Random House, which was. You know, that was surprising. Um, but that was also a goal. I said, I'm going to do this as a major publisher, got that done, got the podcast with iHeart, moved to New York, living in Manhattan. And I'm now in a much more kind of routine, you know, and relatively speaking, kind of chilled out life, focusing on my cool projects. And that was a goal I'd set many years ago, too. Are you in Manhattan now? I am, yeah. What part of town? I'm in Soho. So one of these days I'm come down to visit you. Uh, I'm there a lot. And, uh, Definitely do. And, it's uh, it's so nice down here right now. Well, it's crazy. I, I was there a couple weeks ago, and it was like I keep telling everybody, it's like visiting Machu Picchu. You know, there's <laughs> there's this great civilization, and suddenly everybody left. <laughs> and, and so so we're not far from the meatpacking, so we walk over the meatpacking, and it's like you okay. walk you walk into any restaurant. It's like this is ridiculous. Uh, yeah, very weird. But uh, well, downtown's been super fun because obviously we did a pretty good job of the virus here, and so yeah. New York's numbers have been quite low in the last no, rid- six weeks. Rid- or- ridiculously low. Ridiculously, ridiculously low. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so there's no and so it, the city's been fantastic. Yeah. All right, my friend. It's been uh, really a pleasure to get to meet you and hear your story. And I hope people will be intrigued and get a practical way to get rich and die and die trying. Uh, lots of my goodness, wonderful. Uh, oh, Jordan Harbinger's in here on your on your on the back of your. Yeah, cover. I know you know Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Jordan's a great good guy. buddy of mine. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe the three of us will get together because I don't spend enough time with Jordan. So. That'd be awesome. All right. Well, listen, John, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, again, the podcast is The John Roa Show. Where can they get it? On iHeart, everywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, follow on Twitter and Instagram at John Roa, J-O-H-N-R-O-A, Roa.com. Thanks, John. We'll talk soon. Thanks, after. And we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.